Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule, hence the title. We talk about four things that they cherish, but we also talk about one thing that they rather regret in their life, something they would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian and author, Chaparak Korsandi, who established herself as one of the country's finest comedians in 2006 with her sell-out Edinburgh show, Asylum Speaker, which told the story of how her family was forced to flee from Iran and how her father's popularity as a satirist attacking the Iranian regime has ensured they can't return. As Chaparak says, obviously there's free speech in Iran, but very little freedom after you've spoken. This show led to the publication of her childhood memories, A Beginner's Guide to Acting English. And she's written two novels, Nina Is Not OK, published in 2016, and Kissing Emma, which is just released and available now. Her screenwriting debut was for Sky TV and was called Little Crackers. Chaparat's career has taken her all over the world and she's appeared on loads of TV and radio shows including Mock the Week, 8 Out of 10 Cats, Have I Got News for You, QI, Just a Minute, Live at the Apollo and Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow among many others. She was also a contestant in the 17th series of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. 
She's been nominated for the BBC New Comedy Award and Best Female Comic at the British Comedy Awards, and she won the James Joyce Award in 2013. She was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Winchester in 2010. So let's discover what Shaparak, previously known as and addressed as Shappy throughout this recording, would like to put in a time capsule. My wife has taken my grandchildren off to London town. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah, I might go up and see them later. They're going to the zoo. Yes, we decided to go to the zoo yesterday. Did you really? Yeah, because we were like, when you live in London, sometimes it doesn't occur to you. They're right on the doorstep, to to the all zoo. those things. Yeah. The Tower of London. We went to the Tower of London. Uh, there's a comic called Tom Houghton who lives there. Mm-hmm. Um, because his dad's like the king of the army or something. <laughs> he lives in the Tower of London and... Uh, he invited. I don't know if he invited us or we invited ourselves, but me and the kids went and spent some time with him there, and it's so amazing to actually be inside one of the flats that people live in. Wow, that's amazing. Is his dad a beef eater or something? No, his dad is like the head of the English army, <laughs> and like you know, there'll be a portrait of him up on the wall. Wow! After his tenure's over, his dining room is where Guy Fawkes was tortured. And he showed my children a picture of Guy Fawkes' signature before and after the torture. It was um, it was quite the day out. <laughs> and, you know, he never has to lock his front door because there's always an armed guard outside it. Of course. Yeah, you'd be tempted to shoo the ravens away, though, to bring down the British Empire or whatever it is. Yes, that was it, wasn't it? And, and you know, he said it's really tough when he has to order Deliveroo. <laughs> What do you mean the Tower of London? No, in the Tower of London. like in. Bang on a big knocker. Somebody will open it, yeah. And like, he told us, like, as we went in the gate, where they used to trap the enemy and pour hot oil on them. What a Saturday night that was. <laughs> All right, Shappy, so you're finally going to go on tour again. How does that feel? It feels good, although in lockdown I did have this feeling that I'm not going to tour again because I just loved being at home with the kids so much. That, that wasn't a lifestyle that we'd ever had. No. My daughter was four and she, she, she does impersonations of people. And her impersonation of me was this. Mummy's got to go now. Bye, bye. Going to be late. Going to be late. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, that's how she distilled me. And in lockdown, you know, I really got to know her. (laughs) It was amazing. (laughs) It was amazing because my son used to. um, So I I had my son for six whole years before my daughter came along. Mm. And I I took him everywhere with me on tour, on the road. He was my little travelling companion. And we had a great time. We went all over the UK, abroad, everywhere. Um, but it's harder with two. And then he had to start school and then it got trickier to take him out. So then when my daughter came along, I had to have someone at home to look after my son. So, you know, I didn't take the baby with me. And she'll hate me for saying this, but she wasn't as easy, <laughs> as portable as my son. Yeah, no two children are ever the same. No, they're funny. I, I feel like I'm raising Stephen Fry 
and Stormzy. <laughs> so I am going back on tour, and actually this show is called It Was the 90s, and it has to be pronounced like that. It's not called okay. It Was the 90s. It's It Was the 90s. <laughs> and for the first time in my quite long career, I've really uh, put a show together with a great deal of thought. That sounds like a terrible thing to say, doesn't it? <laughs> but I've put such a lot of thought into this because um, so yeah I've had just some changes in lockdown that have made me a lot more focused and a lot sharper mm. so um, I'm really excited about the tour and I'm not doing a very long one I think I'm going to do what would be a normal tour but over a period of like two years because I just refuse to sacrifice kid time home yeah. time it is fun and the kids enjoy it, but it's like, you know, you take them away on tour with you and you go, oh, it's so great. You know, I took the kids to Croatia and asked my daughter, you know, what's Croatia like? And she goes, oh, Croatia's amazing because you hang out with Nish Kumar in, in Croatia, which is brilliant. <laughs> but let's not lie to ourselves that we're showing the kids the world. <laughs> we're showing the kids the comedy world in a warmer climate. Yeah. It was the third sound check that I really enjoyed. It was great. Yeah. yeah. So not only organising the tour, which is just great to get out and see people, I think, but also you've been writing again. Yes, I um, finished my book Kissing Emma in lockdown. So mm. I didn't have that lockdown experience of having acres of time because I um, was... Kids, hang on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and oh, it was just, um, it was hard. Um, you know, you do need to get lost in your own head when you're writing a book and it's impossible when you're not allowed to go to a cafe or out the house or be anywhere where the kids are not it, it was really tough but I started to just get up at like four in the morning to do it because that's the most still time that even the dogs stood asleep <laughs> that's called kissing Emma and it's coming out in September and it's um very loosely based on the story of Emma Hamilton who was the love of Horatio Nelson's life. So it's sort of taking a woman like Emma Hamilton, who was from an incredibly poor background, no prospects at a time where if you didn't have a man to look after you, you're very likely to be destitute um, and taking a woman like that and putting her in modern day. And so if a young girl who is beautiful and talented and is preyed upon because of her beauty in modern day, what choices does she have? Yes. And it's for young adults. It's aimed at sort of teenaged audience. I discovered, I discovered, Michael, after my book was finished, that the young adult audience is sort of 13 to 16. Yeah. And I was writing my book thinking young adult was about 16 to 19 <laughs> because I, I wrote a book called Nina's Not Okay that did really well and it really um, resonated with a lot of people and it was about an 18-year-old alcoholic. And a couple of outlets, because my main character was 18, described it as a YA book and it wasn't. Mm. So, But in my head, that's what YA was anyway. Long story short, <laughs> I was baffled as to why my publishers were being so puritanical about the content of my book. For some reason, when I write books, I just get very, very dark very quickly. My characters are funny, but they're not comedy books. And I was like, okay, I'll take this out. Can you allude to this, Shappy, rather than graphically describe this sex scene? <laughs> I was like, fine. Fine, fine, fine. And the whole time, I'm like, man, they're really policing people. 
Then the press release came out and said it was aimed at a 13 to 16 year old audience. And I had to write them a letter because they were so polite to me. And I said, I just need you to know that I don't think that my original drafts were suitable for 13-year-olds. <laughs> I would never let my 13-year-old daughter read this filth. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't pay attention in the meetings. I'm so sorry. <laughs> when I was learning about Emma Hamilton, she reminded me a lot of a cousin I have who grew up in Iran. And my, like all, all my cousins are beautiful, but this particular one, she carries herself in a certain way. She has learned how to use that kind of thing uh, to how to capitalize on it. But there needs to be choice. So my Emma has choice, whereas Emma Hamilton didn't. What they don't write in the history books and what the Victorians certainly didn't want anyone to know about her because they wanted to make Nelson's legacy about Trafalgar and Mm -hmm. not about this woman. Oh, don't get me started on Emma Hamilton. I won't stop. (laughs) Honestly, they had to edit me completely out of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here because all I talked about was Emma Hamilton. (laughs) I mean, try doing that to sort of, you know a jungle full of sports stars. Hardly <laughs> anyone was interested in my stories. I would have sat and gone, yeah, tell me more, tell me more. I sat and told the story of Emma Hamilton, uh, Lock, Stock and Barrel, to Georgia Toffolo and uh, Stanley Johnson. Them two were really interested in it because they're mm. really interested in history and, and everything. Um, and to my amazement, my two-hour monologue didn't make the edit. <laughs> <laughs> why the UK Saturday night audience isn't interested. That's the flaw in the programme. Yeah, you were very conscious in there of not knowing what part of your chat they were going to use. So everyone was very performatively empathetic mm-hmm. and trying to appear as nice a person as possible <laughs> at all times. The, the most fair, I am the most fair-minded person in the world, I think you'll find. <laughs> All right, well, you've picked for me five things, I think, from your life to go into a time capsule. So what's your first thing? My first thing is my kids. Why wouldn't you, obviously, want to put your kids in a time capsule to have them forever and ever? So I kind of realised that it seems like the most obvious thing. But with my children, their names are Cass and Vivi, Cassius and Genevieve, um, I find them the most fun people that I can hang out with like I'm obviously on their mother but as well as that nothing's ever quite as fun (laughs) if they're not with me and as I mentioned earlier they are so profoundly different my children and they just constantly entertain me and make me feel less like like I'm a bit lost without them like Mm -hmm. when I did uh I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. It was agony without them in there. Like it was proper agony. And I was the first out. And and if I hadn't been the first out, I, I oh, there's such a strong chance that I would have just walked because it got too much. And I know that it's weirdly not fashionable to say that your children are just your life because I think that there is a sort of leaning towards talking about I get very serious, by the way, on podcasts. I should warn you now. I don't mind. That's all right. I get so serious. <laughs> and sometimes I cry. Um, <laughs> lots of people, when they do this, say, I suppose lots of people have chosen the obvious ones, like children and things like that. And actually, you are the first person to really choose them, to say, I want to put my children in a time capsule. And that's lovely, I think. It's not because 
I love them. I die without them. Of course, that goes for any any parent, um, mm. unless something's seriously gone wrong. <laughs> like I know that some of my friends are very much like. Um, by friends, I mean people I just know. Um, they're very much like, but it's not my identity. Who am I now? Where is the previous me? I have no interest in the previous me. I was so lost before I had children. I had no direction. Uh, yeah, I was not great. I, you know, I, I just want, wasn't very good at, uh, I had all sorts of stuff going on. And I'm perfectly happy, really happy with my identity being Cass and Vive's mom. Mm. You know, because of my job, I've spent so much time away from them. A lot of my life has been spent missing them and being on the phone to them. But I would be utterly lost without them. And I think because I'm a, a single mom, and when my son was born, I went through a really tough seven years of getting a divorce and not really processing that what I saw as a massive catastrophe for my little family. Mm. You can't explain to them the intricacies of emotions that adults have. All they see is their world has just split in two and they cannot fathom it. And, you know, I had to navigate him through that. And it involved a lot of watching Wallace and Gromit <laughs> and eating Wensleydale cheese. <laughs> and that was our little, we lived in this little house together and we'd get really excited. She would go and get some Wensleydale and crackers and we'd just have our little adventures together and I'd take him on tour with me and he'd sit in the back room with someone kind from the theatre that would watch him for me. And then he would go on stage when he got a little bit older and he'd do like, you know, patter with the audience. Oh, brilliant and sing to them and then introduce me onto the stage and sit in the wings and watch me. And having that life is the best for me. And having my little daughter snuggle up with me and tell me stories and whisper things to me like, oh, mummy, I've thought of a really secret story. And tell me all those things that um, the world I inhabit with them is the best world and I never want to be without it. So I will chuck them two in the time capsule if it's all right with everyone. That's lovely. Yes. Loads of sweet things to eat. <laughs> and of course, because they're not able to actually know exactly what it is, all they have is this great sense of things going wrong that they must, in a way, feel that they're responsible for. Even if you tell them they're not, if they're not really old enough to understand it, they're just going to feel responsible for it, I think. What I found with my son was he'd go to his dad's and then come back to mine and then have a tough time emotionally. And then when he got a bit older, I said to him, you know, the only way that I can relate to what it's like for you to go from mine and go to your dad's, go from our house and go to your dad's, is when I was little, I had life at home was completely Iranian the language, the rules, the um, values. And then I'd go out of the home and everything, like at school, everything was English mm. and different rules and different language. And I fit in both 100%, but it took me a moment to readjust yes. from one to the other. And he said, that's exactly right. And I was like, good for me. <laughs> I did. Just acknowledging to him that I understood he was lived in two different worlds. Yeah. And then what happened with him, which um, his dad and I were just too 
um, oh, too stupid to notice initially was so after seven years of a really rotten time, his dad and I uh, became friends again. And he started to date somebody that I liked very much. And we were friends and we'd go around and have cups of tea with each other. Mm. And it was all lovely. Neither of us considered that that change would be discombobulating for our son. Yeah, I thought I understood this. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we were like, jazz hands, look, isn't this great? And I was on the phone to his dad once and I was saying, all right then, okay, my son was in the room and he could hear me say, oh, that's no, oh, no problem. Oh, are you sure? Okay, no problem. Brilliant. Can't wait. Lovely. Put the phone down. And I said to my son, is it strange hearing me talk like that to your dad on the phone? And he just went, yeah. Mm. I was like, right, you now have to adjust. You've made all these coping mechanisms to cope with us, like me crying every time I talk to him, Mm. to everything being like this. And we didn't stop to talk to him about it all. And so it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. And and my my daughter was, you know, her, her father's never met her. He didn't want to be included at all. And obviously, you know, that, that's something she knows about and notices, um, but she's not known different. And she's in a nest of feathers regardless. Her brother's father is incredibly kind to her. And, and in some ways, it's the child with two loving parents that I feel has been through more of an emotional journey than the one who has an absent parent. It's, it's interesting. So I... I just learned so much with my children and I really hope, I mean, I had them, my daughter quite late in life. Mm. I had her when when I was 40 and it is a thought I have in my head, like, oh, am I going to sit with her when she's 40 and talk about all this? Am I going to get to, you know, do all the things with my children as adults that I'd love to do? And my parents are around still. I'm nearly 50 and I've still got both my parents. And I, that's an, I mean, every time I see my parents, I'm just like, hooray, you're here. We're all still here. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I, I think about it a lot. I don't know if parents who had kids younger worry about stuff like that, but I want to be on this earth as long as I possibly can to enjoy them. I think we all think that way. You know, I had children. I was 23. My wife was 21. And now I've got grandchildren who are, the oldest one is nine. But I now think of my grandchildren and think, you know, will I be able to go to their university and uh, take them out for lunch. But, you know, I've not thought about this before, but actually you putting your children into the time capsule means that what you're putting in there is your children now. And that actually when this time capsule is open, that's what will be there. (laughs) (laughs) So in fact, you're sort of in a way fixing them in aspect. (laughs) It's a bit weird. But at least my daughter, at least they'll still be cute and make me laugh. And my son will be able to explain the science of time travel to me (laughs) Uh, and she'll just be a clown and make me giggle lovely yeah well i'm going to take them both and i'm going to put them in the time capsule for you that's your first thank you so much you're very welcome we'll push on we will find out what your second item is um my second item is the muppet show (laughs) the muppet show was a deeply significant cultural phenomenon in my life i think it was the muppet show that really gave me the idea that I will not be 
satisfied in my life unless I'm working in theatres <laughs> and with chaos and with people dressed up as all sorts and with chickens running around <laughs> and very, very serious things as well as very, very funny things. Fozzie Bear was the first stand-up comic I ever saw. And a very profound thing happened to me when we first moved to England, uh, when I was almost five, we went to the Little Angel Theatre so it's a marionette theatre and the puppet um this beautiful marionette going but I love Hans I love Hans the bell ringer and I was tiny in this little theatre watching these puppets and being so utterly emotionally invested in what was going on I'm Hans Christian Anderson that's me <laughs> that's me I remember all the songs and I just knew that I just wanted to be in a theatre forever and ever and ever. And then it was shortly after that when I discovered The Muppet Show and somebody had given me a cassette, The Muppet Show album, and I used to sit under our dining table for hours <laughs> and I'd listen to it and I'd, I'd put my ear right to it. I thought if I can put my ear close enough to it, I'll be in the Muppet Theatre. Mm. And there was this one song that I absolutely loved. And again, this reminds me of my children. It was um, this Muppet that is old and dusty. And he's at an old, dusty piano. And he sings a song by Jim Crochet. And it's called Time in a Bottle. And I thought that, um, I thought it was completely magical. And he's going, if I could put time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity and then I'd spend them with you. So the point is that I would save time in a bottle and, and, and then just spend that time again and again with you. I've looked around enough to know you're the one I want to go through hmm. time with. And then as the song progresses, he gets younger and younger. So by the end of the song, it's a really youthful voice. Oh, how lovely. It's beautiful. And that song used to make me cry when I was six. I, I was just so in love with that album. And then I, and then I watched it on TV and then I saw, you know, uh, Miss Piggy was my first real role model. Um, <laughs> she knew who she was. She knew what she wanted. She understood show business. She was, you know, deeply hurt that the frog just did not respond to her the way she wanted to, to be responded <laughs> to by him. And I've always felt it's, 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 um, it's a bit of a shame that my first female role model was voiced by a man, but Frank Oz was amazing. <laughs> Frank Oz was also Fozzie Bear, you know. Yeah. Oh, what a shame it's not on anymore. Imagine being one of the guests. Oh, it was incredible. Like Leo Sayer. I remember watching Leo Sayer as a guest. Mm. You've got a cute way of talking. And then there, all the rocks would come to life. And they used to have Julie Andrews was on it mm. and um, Elton John. And, oh, it was just Bernadette Peters. That's yeah. how old I am. I remember when Bernadette Peters was on it. Um, yeah, my kids never got into the Muppet show the way I did. Although, you know, they love the Muppet movie, the, the modern Muppet movies and stuff. Those movies are really fabulous. A Christmas Carol is one of the best films ever made, I think. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's, that's actually one they will watch. Mm. But Sam, the American Eagle. Well, I think all those characters on that programme were just amazing. The two old men in the box, brilliant. Yeah, Wardorf and Statler, like, they're horrible hecklers. You know, they're trolls. And I think that knowing them and growing up with them has sort of 
made me um, much better able to deal with um, trolls and hecklers and criticism of, of you know, that's aimed at you purely from a point of it's entertaining to them to be horrible to you. Mm. And you understand that because you've seen Warden and Sattler do it from the corner. That Their relationship is with one another. It's not with the performer. No. And then, you, you know, you've got the scooter. Scooter just sorts everything out. You know, I've done a lot of outdoor gigs lately. Um, you know, I go to the Edinburgh Festival and I know who the scooters are. <laughs> it's raining. It's an outdoor gig. What are we going to do? The lights are gone. Things are gone. Oh, look, someone's just shot themselves out of a cannon. <laughs> and Gonzo. Gonzo is the one who insists on being in show business without having any sort of discernible talent. <laughs> and we've all felt like that and we have all come across people like that (laughs) and just the lesson with gonzo is it's not about ability it's about stickability and if what it takes is shooting yourself out of a cannon that's what you're gonna do and i admire that grit because i always felt in my career if anyone sort of is horrid to me and tells me i'm not funny i just think you don't know what i know you haven't been where i've been you haven't got the grit i have and i learned that from gonzo fantastic it's it's the ability in that program as with all great programs that you get these moments absurd moments you get hilarious moments and then just in the middle of it you get these incredibly poignant things, like that song you're talking about, which is just beautiful, I think. Yeah, it, it is. I, I actually had it read out at my wedding as a poem. Hmm. The Muppet Show, for me, showed me a world, which to me is what the, the stand-up world is and the show business world is, live art is, where everybody's welcome. No one's an oddball. We will be your friend. And in your downtimes. There'll always be someone to sing. If one whole person believes in you, deep enough and strong enough believes in you. And I was like, yeah, that's all you need. You need one person to believe in you because then it grows and that one person can be you. You can believe in you. And so everything I learned about how to survive in show business, I learned from the Muppets. The great Muppets. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. We shall put them into the time capsule in all their glory. Okay, that's two items we put in, Chappie. So what's your third item? Okay, we're going to take a short ad break now, but we'll be back with the very lovely Chaparak or Sandy in a moment. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to My Time Capsule, where we're just about to discover the third thing that Chaparak or Sandy wants to put in her time capsule. So... Let's do that now. My third item is writing. Mm. I write all the time. And as a child, I wrote all the time. As long as I had a pen and paper, I wasn't bored. Now, I have attention deficit disorder, which was only diagnosed fairly recently. Mm. And it made a lot of sense to, uh, to me because I always knew there was something wrong with me. Although I don't necessarily think it's a, a defect, I think... I think as human beings, we need the risk takers. <laughs> we need the you know, hugely instinctive. Ah. And um, writing was always, as a kid, my way to stop myself being bored. And to, uh, the, the tricky thing is about ADHD is to say that you're bored. Well, everyone gets bored. Of course they do. We'll watch something that doesn't really tickle our fancy. We'll have to do tasks that um, you know we'd rather not do, like our admin. But people with ADHD can't. Like, they can't and I've got to a point where I'm, I'm I just I'm not going to explain that anymore because I've got like family members who don't get it and I'm like I'm not going to explain it to you it's go go and read your own books mm-hmm. I can't go watch your own TED talks so for me writing was my way of engaging myself in something when I was um checking you know absolutely going mad with needing to not be somewhere uh and not be listening to something because it it, it Oh, this like steel curtain would just come down. Mm. I loved writing letters. I've got a, a massive folder of letters that friends and I wrote to each other in the 90s when we were at university. Because back then, you know, we didn't have email, we didn't have WhatsApp. So you'd have to write a letter. Mm. And when I look through my book of letters now, I exchanged letters with people that I didn't even know ever so well. <laughs> you know, they weren't deep and meaningfuls about what was going on in my life a lot of the time. They were like, oh, there's a really nice girl in my class or that I met in the bar. And anyway, I've got her address, I'll drop her a line. And then she'd drop you a line back. Mm. And it was just, you know, you wrote letters the way you might write a quick text going, hey, how was your holiday? Um, was You know, whatever. I miss that. In lockdown, I started to, there's me and a couple of people wrote to each other, which was a really lovely thing to do in lockdown, just to get a nice letter in the post rather than a text message. Um, if you have an argument with someone and you write them a letter, you process your emotions as you're writing that letter. Mm. You don't process your emotions while you're having a text row. If you're worried about a friend and you write to them, what you write ends up being a lot more meaningful because you, you're not knee-jerk responding you're considering Mm. i wonder if the the digital record of all the communications we've had since people well to a large extent have stopped writing letters uh, i wonder if that'll be as revealing about all of us or in fact will give the wrong impression 
I mean, I find myself doing it all the time now, but that thing of putting an emoji after almost everything in order to explain what you meant. Yeah. So this is irony. I'm winking at you now, so you know that I was not serious when I said that. You would assume that the person you were writing to understood you well enough to know what you meant. Yeah, absolutely. And trusting a joke, trusting sarcasm, trusting irony, Mm. taking the time to read it and absorb it, getting a letter and reading it over and over again, that was a joy. Mm. My granddaughter has not been um, diagnosed yet, but... uh, she has that thing where you, you can't tell her to do something. And as you say that thing, I can't. I just can't. Mm. You can't tell her to do something. You have to, in a way, persuade her. In The line the Witch in the Wardrobe, so when uh, Lucy comes out of the wardrobe and tells Edmund, and Edmund tells the older two that, oh, Lucy's lying. And so the older two, Peter and Susan, go and see the professor. And they say, Edmund says she's lying. And he says... This is your sister who previously has been of good character and doesn't lie. So why would she be lying now? And it's just, for me, it's the same with dismissing ADHD as kids that are naughty. It's like mm-hmm. this, this, you, this is this is a nice child, mm-hmm. and this is a good child, and and uh, you know whatever good means. So if they're struggling with something, then it's so brilliant to hear parents of a young child recognizing that it would be massively frustrating. Mm. for this child to then go, if you could just, it's that thing. If yeah. you could just, we can't just. No. And and then what happened, because I was, you know, I was a good kid. You know, I was never in trouble at school. I never did, you know, I wasn't naughty. I was just utterly unable to um, focus on things, even if I really, like, I wanted to do well. I wanted to do well, but I took my work home and this curtain would come down and it was, you know, told that, oh, she doesn't apply herself. She's, because I'm articulate and I could, as a child, I could, you know, say anything to the teachers and and worm my way out of any any, uh, reason I hadn't done my homework. And I couldn't be honest with them. I couldn't say, when I sit down and do my homework, my brain scatters into daydream land and I'm locked in daydream land. And then as I got older, see, I found, I realized that ADHD was the reason that I um, drank so much and had a really hard time with compulsive overeating. Like I lost my twenties to, to bulimia. And now that I've learned, I'm learning about ADHD, those were ways to quieten my head down mm to quieten it down. And since I've been receiving treatment, those two things haven't blighted my life anymore, Mm. you know. My little granddaughter's inability to sleep because she can't stop her brain. She just can't slow it down. Oh, it's so hard. And and you see she's exhausted, absolutely exhausted. It's 11 o'clock at night. She's so desperate to go to sleep and her brain is just whizzing like mad. She's on a motor. That's what it feels like. You are on a motor. Mm-hmm. And I really relate to that. I really relate to her. And I'm so happy that she's got people around her that are on it. But, you know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, I was just a space cadet. Yeah. And again, just going back to the Muppet show, I don't think it's a surprise that so many people in the creative industry are neurodivergent, you know, with ADHD and, and things, because when you have ADHD, you don't need to be encouraged to follow your passions. You can't do anything other 
then follow your passions because everything else sends you into like running for the door. So mm. just going back to writing, my father's a writer. Yeah. And growing up, this man who my dad can't sit through, he's never sat through a whole film. He can't <laughs> sit through a film. He couldn't, he'd get agitated at our school shows because he had to sit still and, and watch us. And then he'd end up leaving to go out for like cigarettes. And we'd go, oh God, he's not interested in our school plays. It's hereditary. He's got ADHD. He can't sit still. He can't. And he would party. He'd be life and soul, drinking, da 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 and then at home have ants in his pants. Then in the still of the night, as a child, I'd come downstairs and my dad would be at the kitchen table still writing, writing. And that's where he was hyper-focused. Mm. And writing to him was the space where he feels peaceful in his head and calm. It's sort of ironic as well, isn't it? Because I'm sure I read that it was your father's writing that meant you had to leave Iran. Yes, yes, because he's, um, you know, he's a very outspoken opponent of the regime there. But it's really interesting with him because I said to him, because I write novels, and I said to him, do you think you could ever write a novel, Dad? And he went... I don't have the attention span. I give you poems, <laughs> poems, satirical essays. That's what I do. And he wrote a play and he wrote it really quickly. And it was quite a quick play. <laughs> Only 45 minutes. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Done. And he draws cartoons. And so the fact that I write whole books like, absolutely fascinates my dad. Mm. How do you do it? Like, how do you stay concentrated? It's like, I don't. It kills me. The next one will be a lot easier because I'll be writing the next one knowing that I, I'm on ADHD medication. It's helped me enormously. But writing Kissing Emma um, was, yeah, with ADHD, it took about three times longer than it should have done. Well, you give me great encouragement because my granddaughter, again, is very articulate, loves to write. And so that gives me great hope for her because that's a sort of an outlet for her imagination. But you know, it must have been extraordinary to go all that time with nobody really knowing what it was. It was awful. Mm. It was awful because it affects everything. It mm. affects your relationships, your ability to manage your emotions because your brain just uses the wrong part. <laughs> processing pathways whatever I mean I'm not a, I'm not a doctor but I physically feel my brain using itself differently I mean I feel it and when I was growing up and I think this is just makes me so happy about children like your granddaughter and other children that are gay that, that whose parents are open to the fact that this is something that can, they cannot help and all your life you'll be told oh but if you just did meditation or maybe some breathing do you think yoga we're just too stressed so everyone's got all the bloody answers and none <laughs> of them are a psychiatrist right yeah and I grew up with a profound sense of feeling like an idiot because I found things that other people seemed to find easy very difficult the only jobs I could get um, when I left university was um I was a cleaner and I was a life model because cleaning and life modeling are jobs that you can do by yourself and you can daydream while you do them. I was just headphones on, domestic cleaner, and I did that until comedy started to pay the rent. Mm. But you, you save people from a heap of frustration if you um, allow them to just be who they are and don't tell them that it's wrong and understand that, that, that it's not one size fits all in the brain department. 
There are so many things in life that are exactly that. We're constantly told this is what you should be. This is how you should do things. This is the way you should think. Yeah. Uh, the whole education system, children constantly are told you should fit this model. This is what you should look like. This is what you should behave like. And this is how you get educated. And it just again and again and again, it only fits a percentage of children. The rest of them are outside of that system. And, and so the thing doesn't work. It really doesn't. But we'll we'll go on to this. Oh, I have things planned to say to you about this. <laughs> OK, well, then, in that case, we will put writing into the time capsule for you and we move on to your fourth item. Thank you. Billy Connolly. Oh, how lovely. Poor Billy Connolly is going on my time capsule. I don't know how he will feel about this. I'm really sorry to Billy Connolly and everyone who loves him, but I'm put it, I'd like to take him with me because he is the personification of joy and wonder and human connection. Mm. My grandmother didn't speak English and she used to come and visit us. And I used to watch an audience with Billy Connolly and she got obsessed with it. She didn't understand a word of what he was saying. <laughs> I translate some bits, but it didn't matter to her. She would be crying, laughing. Grandmother was a very funny woman. She, was, she had a very sharp sense of humour. And she just goes, I don't know what it is about him, but he's just hilarious. And I wonder if he ever knows that just through the television, he connected with an elderly Iranian woman that couldn't speak English because his humour is a top-to-toe, inside-out thing. And, um, you know, that expression, humour's what you do when you have intelligence to burn. He has so much intelligence to burn. And he gifted it to us. Yes, and what a gift it was. You're absolutely right. On stage, it, when you saw him live, have you ever seen him live? Never. I never oh, saw him live. Right. Isn't that a shame? Well, it is, because the moment where he paused and sort of looked at you and twinkled and you knew something was coming, they were the jo really, really joyous moments. I mean, I, I've never felt so excited watching someone as waiting to hear what he was going to say next, even, in fact, if I knew the routine. Yeah. Yeah, because he keeps you bang in the present moment with him right here, right now. Mm. And I have to say, he does. He reminds me of my dad because my dad also did stand-up comedy later in life. My dad is a natural showman, a natural storyteller. And that twinkle in your eye, I just used to watch my dad and just go, how do you do this? <laughs> how do you get people in the palm? How do you get people to love you so much? It's incredible and people would like hold me in their arms and go your father and so I feel that way about um Billy Connolly and he's everything that I love about stand-up and watching him when I when I was growing up where a lot of the comedy on telly was like didn't include me you know it's Benny Hill you know we watched Benny Hill as a family didn't include me under its umbrella Jim Davidson uh, didn't include me under its umbrella mm -hmm. um Billy Connolly included me in every way. It didn't matter if I was a kid. didn't matter if I was a child. didn't matter if I was like foreign. None of that mattered. And what I find with stand-up comedy is that people like trot out these sort of tired stereotypes of stand-ups. Like, oh, they're all so narcissistic and it's all about ego. And I find that really tiresome because for me, stand-up comedy is about your second chance at the playground mm -hmm. and to connect with people from 
all walks of life. Like in that room, in that moment, it doesn't matter what your politics are, what your class is. It doesn't matter who you are. In that moment, it's about connection and wonder and joy. Well, the real joy, when you think about it, I can't think of another person who basically could get away with as Billy Connolly has done on a number of occasions, just taking all his clothes off and running around in front of the camera. Yeah. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Comics don't do enough of that these days. Actually, if anybody else did it, they would say, well, you've got to cut that. You're going to have to cut. You can't have you jumping around. You can't have your little grey willy jumping around all over the place. That's no good. <laughs> and, and yet this is a man with such a zest for life. It's like, I'm going to have as much fun as possible and you're coming with me. <laughs> it's that attitude that I love and and I was I was torn between um is this my fourth one in the yeah because I I was torn you see one of my other things that I was going to put in the I probably shouldn't say this now it's cheating it is but that's all right (laughs) but it was a toss between writing and Brighton Pier Ah. In fact, I wish I'd said Brighton Pier instead of writing now, damn it. But (laughs) the the point is they're connected. They're connected because Brighton Pier, to me, represents my dad's lust for life and having as much fun as humanly possible. And you're all coming with me because so (laughs) often in my childhood, we'd be at a party. My dad was a natural showman only interested in having a good time and at two o'clock in the morning he'd say to this room full of people dancing at a party let's all get in our cars and go to Brighton and he had a (laughs) mate he had a mate who had this massive hotel and we would wake them up at like you know three four in the morning whatever time we got there with like our entourage of like 20 party goers no one's got an overnight bag someone's pregnant with triplets it's all mayhem and they put us up in all the rooms And then the next day, we all go to Brighton Pier. This massive group of (laughs) mad Iranians with all their kids (laughs) in tow, their party clothes still on, high heels on the waltzers, you know, with their sort of dapper suits playing on the coin machines, going on the helter-skelter. And Brighton Pier just is that same joy to me that... (laughs) Billy Connolly keeps me because you're basically, in a nutshell, he reminds me of my dad. Uh, brilliant. I'm going to put Billy Connolly on Brighton Pier. Brilliant. In your time, Catherine, then you've got both. So we're going to talk about the one thing from your life that you'd like to get rid of now. That's your last item. Okay, my high school. Your high school? High school years. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. That building. <laughs> I still can't drive past that building without blowing a raspberry. In fact, I've, I live quite near it now. It's in Hanwell and I live in Ealing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I can try and make this funny, but it was just a <laughs> traumatic experience going to my high school. And uh, I went to a school called Montpelier in Ealing, my primary school, mm. which was so lovely. You know, I was a, I didn't speak English when I went. We had a lovely teacher called Mrs. Gad who gave up her lunch times to sit with my brother and I and give us little extra English language um, practice. And everyone called me Chaparak, and that was my name, and no one teased me. And I was a chubby kid, but that didn't matter because I was one of the gang. And I was a quiet kid, very quiet, but um, 
hopeless with my academic stuff, but mm. it didn't really matter. No one picked up on it in those days. With I had dyslexia as well. <laughs> but we had a head teacher called Mr. McQueen, who was something big in amateur dramatics, uh, Quester's Theatre in, in Ealing. And he made every assembly so much fun you know he told us fables from the bible we sang our hearts out in hymn practice all the things that I enjoy you know who's he had been a pilot in the war and he told us stories about that and he was everything that I loved he was kind he was theatrical we didn't do a school play we didn't do Bugsy Malone as our school play he wrote our school musical production he wrote this rap (laughs) <laughs> this, this this sort of musical extravaganza where we're going up to London Town, to London Town, to London Town. We're going up to London Town. So come and join the party, <laughs> all a cappella. And it was amazing. Mm. And I went from that school to my high school and it couldn't have been more of a culture shock. On the first day, this girl that I didn't even know turned around to me and went, Chaparac, you make me sick. Uh, No one had ever spoken to me like that before. It was somehow all the kids were taller than me. I was of normal height at my primary school, but suddenly everyone was massive. Everyone was loud and pushed you. And I saw daily violence and people would say, oh, but it toughened you up. It didn't toughen me up. It didn't toughen me up. Quite the opposite. There's stuff that happened in my school on a daily basis. Then in my adult life, you would call the police. Mm. But somehow in a school, you know, getting bloodied before your chemistry class was all right. You just went Mm -hmm. to the welfare officer, perhaps, because someone's just bashed your head against the locker. It was the pits. And I wasn't one of the sporty kids. And I've since found out I'm a very, very good runner. But I didn't know that then. I didn't have the opportunity to, to, to do that and know that there was no drama, absolutely no theatre, nothing creative at the school. Mm. And dyslexia, ADHD, forget about it. I, I was just, it was like a sheep dip. <laughs> they chose three kids out of like 200, sorry, not three, 30 kids. And they decided based on the 11 plus that these are the 30 that were going to go to university and the rest of them just get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. And Steve McQueen uh, went to the same school as me. And I started to really process the damage my school did to me when I uh, listened to interviews that Steve McQueen did. And in all of them, he talked about our school. Mm. He was, I think he was in the year or two above me. Um, and like everyone at that school, I pretend I remember exactly who he was because he went on to become a very, very famous artist. And <laughs> blah, blah. He talked about the school. They wouldn't let him do art Crazy. at that school. Crazy. And, he, and he went on to win the Turner Prize, you know. It was really, really hard. But I had, I had this magical moment of, I'm trying to keep it light. I'm trying <laughs> to keep it light. But I'll just say institutionalised racism, mm-hmm. which has been, I'm not naming the school because it has been acknowledged by them. And I believe they've had Steve McQueen in to apologise. But not me. That's all good. But I was on the Isle of Wight and I, uh, a gentleman at the next table turned around to me and said, do you remember me? This is only a few months ago. And I said, it's you. It was, it was my old PE teacher at that school right. who was great. And I instantly, after all these years, after seeing him by chance, the first words that came out of my mouth was, that school messed me up. Mm. And he said, I know. 
And he said, do you still live in Ealing? I said, yes. And he said, would you like to have a cup of tea when we go back? Because we're obviously both on holiday. I said, yes, please. And we went for this cup of tea a few months ago. I cannot begin to tell you how healing it was. Hmm. Because he said to me, you know, he said, you've, you've thought that the fact that you failed academically, which I did, I massively failed academically, you've, you've sort of blamed it on your dyslexia, on your ADHD, on the fact that your parents were refugees and had a lot on their plates, so they couldn't steer you in this foreign land. It was none of those things. It was because we failed you. We failed you. We wrote you off. Mm. And that happened to so many children in the 80s. Yeah. I know that there were teachers there that saw what was happening. And I, even as a child, like this teacher that I met, I don't want to say his name. He tried. He saw what was going on at that school. Um, he saw why some kids, let's, let's not be mealy-mouthed about this, it was the black kids weren't permitted to progress. I was there. I saw it. I saw it. I recognised it. But as a kid, even the teachers who saw it were shut down if they tried to bring it up. Mm. In the 80s, there was nowhere to go with this sort of complaint. And things have changed. The other day, I met a guy who, who was 35, so I'm 48. He went to that school and he went, it was great. And I was like, yes. And he's, you know, off colour. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's changed. It's 2021. We've all moved on. But in terms of a time capsule, I could really have done without those years because so many people say to me, but that made you the person you are today. And didn't that give you the grit to follow your dreams? I knew what my dreams were when I was watching The Muppet Show <laughs> when I was four. Yeah, that's That stifled me. I had to rebuild after that experience. I had to rebuild some sort of self-esteem and get myself into university and you know, they told me I couldn't do three A-levels there because they said I was too stupid to do three A-levels. They only let me do two. So I left and I went to college and I got an A for my English A-level. Like, what stupid, you know, stupid kid, if there's such a thing exists, which I don't think it does, no. gets an A for their A-levels, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? Oh, so yes, I wish I could make that. I told you I'd be serious. That's all right. <laughs> no, it has changed and in lots of ways for many things, but it's not changed enough children are not all the same so i'm glad you put that school from that time that's it from that time yeah but it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you (laughs) shabby well it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you for having me on you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my wonderful guest shaparak corsandi Please subscribe to this podcast, which you can do on any podcast provider, for all episodes as they become available. And do rate the show before you go. It really helps. You could even write a review if you have the time. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just search My Time Capsule or Fenton Stevens. The theme tune, written by Pastor P's Music, is available to download in full on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Thank you to all our advertisers and sponsors for keeping this podcast going, but they're obviously only there because you take the time to listen. So thank you, one and all. And as Tiny Tim so rightly said, tiptoe through the tulips. Oh, no, sorry, wrong Tiny Tim. God bless us, everyone.
Bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.